What are you doing, Erin? Sorry, I just took a photo because you're on a washing basket and it's funny. Uh, <laughs> oh, you're on a tub of clothes for me. You're on a filing cabinet for me. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag finance. Hashtag finance. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Fierce Females of History podcast, where we tell the stories of women from history that you should know about. My name's Lucy. I'm Erin. And I'm Talissa. Or are you Anxiety Central, as you have as your display name? You just changed it then. <laughs> you nearly threw me off the intro. I stumbled because I was like, wait, hey, that's not her name. Talissa has changed her, her, on our program we're using, she's changed her screen name to Anxiety Central. It just mm-hmm. felt right. You want to unpack it? No, no, not here. <laughs> I pay a therapist plenty of money to do that. Fair elsewhere. enough. So we're good. We're Fair good. Enough. Thank you for asking. What was yours before though, Erin? Yours was cool and collected leader or something like that? Wasn't it a cautious speaker? Cautious, cautious speaker, speaker, which can I confirm is not what I am. <laughs> you are definitely not a cautious speaker. I think you're the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Oh, it's good to be back. Good to be here. Happy to have you. It is. It is. And uh, this week I've chosen someone who I saw when we were travelling through the Northern Territory and we saw her at the Women's Museum, National Women's Museum. And um, she actually had a plaque in there that inspired me heaps. So that's who I've I've chosen her today. She's pretty cool. Well, it's exciting that we... um yeah, because we did we did visit the Women's Museum in Alice Springs, which is also in the Northern Territory, and it was one of my favourite parts of our trip as well, for obvious reasons, but it was just also really, really cool just to see all the, these amazing Australian women up on the wall who were like, who have done so many firsts, which is really mm-hmm. cool. But the added bonus, which was really cool, is that the museum is inside the old jail as well. So you you wow. get like a jail tour. You're like walking through the. Talissa didn't have a good time through the jail I section. <laughs> Blake jumped out and scared me, and I screamed so loud and burst into tears. Yeah. Did you enjoy any of this trip? It sounds like you were always <laughs> crying. <laughs> she was always really cr- sweaty or crying and telling us that she does not want to do what we're doing. No, that's so true. Yeah, it just it sounds like a real mixed. <laughs> it was. I was crying at the Women's Museum and then we went into the jail and I was crying because I was so scared. Jails <laughs> freak me out. I'm not for them. And you were crying in the helicopter. I'm passing out in the helicopter, thank you very much. And after the 8K hike I made her do. So, you know. Cried. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She shed a lot of salt water. Erin, well, I would probably cry after. It wasn't that bad. Yeah, okay. Well, It was the hardest physical challenge I've ever done in my life. And we did it before I got hot. Why was it so hard? I don't walk. I do about 300 <laughs> steps a day. And then I was forced to do like what's 20,000 or something up a steep, rocky track. I was going to, I honestly sat down halfway and I was like, this is where, this is where I live now. I'm not moving. This is fucked. <laughs> and and it, got, yeah. it, got, it got even better for Calissa, which I feel like we can all laugh about now. Uh, she swallowed a fly in that exact moment. Two. And, swallowed oh, two sorry. flies in the walk, one in that moment. <laughs> the first one I swallowed down and then spewed oh it back up. Oh, my God. Up. Love that for me. The <laughs> second one I felt into my mouth and I was like, not today, Satan. Wow. And I grabbed it with my two fingers and threw it. And I was like, I'm a territory local now. Yeah. It felt really powerful. She went through a lot. Oh, my God. So on that note, who has inspired you on your 
your travels through the Northern Territory? Well, I am going to be doing Florence Violet Wallace, who oh, – do you know who she is? No, I was just thinking we've got two Florences in a row. Pancho's real name was Florence. Florence, yeah. yeah. I forgot that. It is a great name. Yeah. I just remember Pancho. Well, it's funny because this Florence doesn't like the name Florence. She goes by Violet, which is her middle name for most of her life. <laughs> No one likes the name Florence. I love the name Florence. Like it's, it's quite it. a nice name. But everyone that I've met who's called Florence or has it in their name, they've been like, nah, not into it. Flo. I love it. I like Flossie. It's on my list of kids' names. I'm not oh, I think lie. it's pretty. It's just interesting. All right. So Florence uh, was born on September 28, 1890 in Melbourne, Australia, and she was the second child of English-born parents. Her dad, James, was a minor and her mum's name was Marie Annie. When she's a baby, her dad passes away and the family moved to my region where I live, funnily enough, which I found out after picking her, by the way. Hmm. They moved to the south coast of New South Wales and into a town called Ostermere, which is about an hour south of Sydney. Beautiful. It's very nice. Be- beachy and, I mean, ve- it gets very busy now. I feel like a lot of yeah visitors to the region go to Ostermere now. Yeah, it wasn't a tourist area back in the day. Like it was, it's a coal mining town and we had a lot of um, like miners lived around the area. Both there's a coal mine into the mountains and then up the escarpment as you drive towards Sydney. So it was basically just a steel-making mining town for majority of the time. Yeah. And it still kind of is. Yeah. Like, but on the beach. But on the beach. Which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone I know has someone in their family who works in the mines or in the steelworks. Like you can't escape it. So that's where she grew up. And she started attending through public school. And from a young age, we're going to call her Violet because that's what she preferred. Um, she had a really big interest in electricity and in inventing stuff. She was like kind of like tinkering around the house from a really young age. Mm-hmm. In a 1979 interview, she actually recalled playing with bells and buzzers. And she said she'd make things for around her house. Like one time her mum, who had really bad eyesight, couldn't see toward the back of a cupboard. So Violet switched up a battery and some wires and a light bulb and so set it up so every time her mum opened the cupboard door the light would come on kind of like we've got the fridges now that do that yeah yeah oh I like that so this is like when she was in primary school like she was really really good at electrical stuff crafty kid she really was Mm. yeah and um she gets a grant to study at the Sydney Girls High School which was a great thing for her because the education you get up in Sydney is way better than you would in a regional town Mm. at that time in obviously early 1900s. Yeah. And Sydney Girls High School is still to this day one of the top. Yeah. uh, I don't know. What would you say? Brainiacs. Yeah. Top scoring uh, private schools. I don't think it's private. um, Isn't it private? It's a, it's a state school, but it's, it is, it is highly selective. There you go. A lot of the top HSC results come out of those schools. Yes. Not in dance. That was my school. Um, <laughs> <just>. <laughs> well, they're book smart, I think. That's the, the yeah. key element here. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it was Violet. She was super, super book smart and loved science and maths and those sorts of things. And she was really good at them. And by this time, she was rigging up some serious electrical engineering around the house. So it kind of went from, you know, the light bulbs in the cupboards to more like hectic stuff that she was making. When she graduates in 1909, around that time, her older brother is given permission to go to England to become an electrical engineer. And Violet's like, OMG, that's exactly what I want to do. 
But um, she's a woman oh, in yeah, 1909. Oh, that's right. Of course. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that old Chester. Exactly. And instead she enrolls to become a maths teacher. So she still does further education at the Sydney Teachers College, um, but she graduates as a maths, te- maths teacher in 1913. It's so not exactly what she wants to do, but still in a field that she's really passionate about. So she teaches maths in Armadale for two years before she says, fuck it. And she moves back to Ostermere, back to her hometown. And at age 25, she enrolls in the University of Sydney. So she can get Mm -hmm. into the uni, but she can't enroll in electrical engineering because there's a couple of different hoops you have to jump through. One of which is you have to be working in the field of Uh electrical engineering to get into the degree or be a man, either one. Yeah. Um, so she does an arts degree and she does all the subjects that you would learn in the first year of electrical engineering. So she kind of crafts her own degree out. Mm -hmm. So she does physics, mathematics, chemistry, and geology as well. And so she's got this like base now of what an electrical engineer learns in their first year of university. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So people are saying that it suggests that she was trying to transfer over, but unfortunately, due to financial burdens and the fact that she's a woman, it's just not that simple not at all and she can't yeah. transfer. No. Dang. Yeah. Instead, uh, she goes down to the technical college or TAFE that we have now, what we call TAFE, mm-hmm. and she saw the head of the technical college and she, they said, you can't come here and do engineering unless you're working at it and that means working in the field or have an apprenticeship in the field but despite how hard she tried, no one would hire her at all. So she went to all these different businesses and tried to get an apprenticeship through them. And despite being naturally gifted at this, like from a little age, being able to do all this electrical engineering, doing all the base courses that you have to do at university, they're like, we won't hire you. We're not interested. Off your hop. Bullshit. Mm. So she says to herself, you know what? I could make my own electrical engineering business and uh, hire myself <laughs> and then loophole I'm working in the field. I like that. Oh, Violet, nice to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you, Violet. Oh, got a great resume. Oh, well, thank you, Violet. <laughs> Employee of the month, Violet. Yeah. Every month. Every month. <laughs> and that's what she does. Good she makes her. It'd be great to set your own KPIs, smash them out of the park every time, give yourself a raise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, Christmas party would go off. Also, um, yep. imagine, let's just like put ourselves in Violet's shoes for a sec here. Imagine her being at this school, studying alongside all these other people doing their thing and like the amount of people that would have heard what she was doing and would have just scoffed in her face like mm-hmm. the the persistence in that is just so inspiring like yep i just go violet i know right yeah. so she makes business cards with her name and her business name on it yes queen so that's a, that's that's the proof cuz they said she'd need proof if she was going to do that and she puts an ad in the paper and she takes a job that's out around Marrickville area, but the tram line didn't connect to there. So she had Mm -hmm. to get all her equipment and carry it miles away from the tram line. And she reckons she only got the job because no other electrical engineers would agree to do it because it was too hard to get there. But she does it and she gets her first job and she gets Mm. paid and that contract and that business card is what she takes to the tech 
and she becomes the first woman to enroll to become an electrical engineer in Australia. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah. Good for her. This is cool. We have lots of engineer friends that are women. We have a lot of female engineer friends and they do listen to this podcast and this is freaking cool. I'm excited. Yeah. And I kind of love that she's like a woman working in STEM. And we hear all yeah. the time we need more women working in STEM. Mm-hmm. That would be brilliant in this field if we can just get more women inspired. And it's like here is a woman who was a trailblazer in this field, an absolute trail. And when you hear the rest of her story, yeah, it's it's really, really inspiring. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I hope like any little like science minds out there that who are thinking of doing something like this like can take a bit of the grit that she has and like get it done. Hopefully they have a – light bulb moment <gasps> oh all right do beautiful. i just go now do i just see myself no no now? that was a great okay. joke i love that Sorry. you said it down the wire down the wire <laughs> <laughs> oh god we're on a roll keep it coming <laughs> there's a lot of sparks flying around <laughs> oh dear oh yeah. dear all right let's flick a flick a switch and go back to what you were talking about oh you guys are so good at this <laughs> yes while the atmosphere is electric this could just be the rest of the podcast <laughs> and we're done thanks so much for listening to this week's episode and we lost about 50 percent of our listeners in one go <laughs> not our engineer friends though loyalty no they're still here they love it they have no choice yeah <laughs> Nilo and Beck yeah so she gets into TAFE and she's viewed as a novelty in the course, obviously, which is just literally men and her. And some of the teachers are pretty pissed off about her even being in the course, so they give her harder work to try and, like, prove that she's not good enough. <sighs> but she proves them wrong because she's yes. really bloody talented. She's like, and next. I love that. I love yep, that. Yep, exactly. And eventually m- most of the people around her get on board they should have been on board from the start, but when they realise how good she is, they're like, okay, fair play. We get it now. Yeah. She bought a radio sales and repair shop in the Royal Arcade in Sydney and she ran this shop while studying. So she was repairing stuff while also doing TAFE. And in 1922, it opened for business formally as the wireless shop, cool. which was really widely respected in the town and ran as a business for a number of years. In December 1923, Violet graduated from Sydney Technical College and, as I said, her diploma was the first of its kind awarded in Australia to a woman in history, which is epic. Yeah. I love that. So while she's working at this store that she opened, three others and her who were into electrical engineering co-founded the first ever radio magazine in the country called The Wireless Weekly, um, which was a magazine all about radios and electrical engineering. And it Mm -hmm. it was renamed The Electronics Weekly and stayed in circulation until 2001. Wow. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Cool. So nearly 80 years in circulation. Wow, that's awesome. Huge, right? And while she's working in the radio shop, she first hears of a thing called Morse code. It said that some teenage kids come into the shop and they're like bragging about this thing that they've heard about called Morse code. And she's like, Morse code, I want to learn more. Morse. want to learn Morse. I know how to say SOS in Morse code and that's it. All right, go. I'm get- it's going to be really embarrassing if I'm wrong. We don't know. Okay. But you ready? Okay. Any Morse coders, if you're listening, please send us an email. <laughs> okay, so she was 
overhearing some children talking about TikTok or Morse code or something. Morse code, yeah. Yep. And so she trains up in it. And in 1924, she becomes the first Australian female certified in radio telegraphy, I think it's pronounced, and um, which means Morse code. And she goes back to the TAFE because she's obviously graduated now and she's working and she teaches it to the 750 male students there, which is a punch in the gut for all the teachers who she now knows more than. So. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She also becomes the first female. The great thing is she could just be like tapping out swear words. I was the about whole to time, say, what's, you know, what, in ooh, beginner classes. What's, what's yeah. fuck you in Morse code? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so she becomes the first female member of the Wireless Institute of Australia as well and the first woman ever to hold an amateur wireless license. An amateur what license? Wireless license. Wireless license. So, Basically, like amateur radio is a thing that's anything that's like not commercial in Australia radio wise is known as amateur radio. So sometimes that's emergency communications and sometimes that's things called radio sport where teams compete to try and get the most signals over two-way radios. Uh, Fun. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Nerds. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that sounds like a sport for you because you hate you walking so much. Oh, <laughs> I love the idea of that. I'll go to the Olympics for it. Back to Violet, though. So that same year that she goes back to learn Morse code and stuff, so she's 1924, um, she gets married to a man named Cecil Roland McKenzie. So that's where she gets becomes Florence. Violet McKenzie, who she's known as now because she takes her married name through the rest of the story, um, as most married women do. I don't know why I explain that so weirdly. And um, Cecil is nine years her junior. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And he is a radio engineer, like I said. How old was she, out of curiosity? Because she was 25 when she she's born got her business, right? Yeah. And then she gets married in 1924. So she's 34 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We love to see it. Bring it home, Violet. Yeah. Bring it home. She's a boss. That is. She's like, I got stuff to do. Amazing. Okay. It's just rare. It's just rare in these stories. I know. It's normal it's, now. It's, but it is rare. It's very it's rare. It's cool to see a oh, young woman, career, let's get that sorted. I've got a goal. Mm -hmm. All right. Love life. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Let's do this. Exactly. I love it. Yeah. I'm here for it. I know. It's I keep telling my parents. I'm like, 34, 35. They're like, mm, okay, cool. <laughs> Why, though? And I'm like, I'm busy. So Cecil and her are very cute together. They have a lot of interests like electrical engineering and also tropical fish because obviously they both go hand in hand. Nerds. Yeah. And they have a massive tropical <laughs> fish pond outside their house with things like seahorses in it. Oh, that's pretty majestic, oh, actually. So that's fun. Do you know that seahorses, it's the dads that carry the babies? Yes. yes. She really is a feminist, this Violet. I am yeah. here for She's it. She's a feminist before. She probably even knew what feminist was. Exactly. Oh, she probably knew. That was dumb to say because it's 1924 by this <laughs> point. But, you know, <gasps> mm, they've, they've been, been around. around. Um, so she begins turning her attention here from the shop to teaching other women about electricity and radio, um, which is huge because when she was trying to learn about it, there was no one that could help her. It was a huge barrier, the, her gender. And so she tells the Australian Women's Mirror in 1925 that there are a lot of women experimenters, like people playing with radios, um, among her customers. And so she wants to form this thing called the Women's Wireless Club. And she also – That's cool. Yeah, and so part of that is that she wants there not to be the barrier that she 
met when she was trying to learn. But also she thinks women's lives could be made easier with electricity and modern things like appliances. So that's pretty cool too. She's like, no, no. She's like, guys, 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 hear me out, hear me out. I'm going to make it easier. Electricity. <laughs> I'm going to make it, I'm going to teach women about electricity to make it easier mm. for them to be your housewives. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I've got good intentions, good intentions. That's it. Nothing else. Don't worry. Nothing else. Exactly. No, no it's just so that we, it's easier for us to do your mm-hmm. laundry and cook your meals yeah. and be there for you <laughs> at the end of the day waiting. Don't worry. It's, nothing it's still else. about you. It's still about you. It's still about you. It's not about <laughs> us. It's about you. Do you know what though? Like those innovations, like the washing machine, were actually massive in terms of yeah. women's liberation. And she sees totally. this in 1925. Yeah. Well, she thinks that every woman could be saved from the domestic drudgery by electricity and that she wants women. Domestic drudgery. And well, she wants women emancipated from the heavy work of the household by the aid of electricity. And she sees that as a really worthy cause. So that's where she starts to put her focus in. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like seriously, spare me the whole, what the, the board things with the ridges on them and the soap and you got to like, no, oh, far, far out. I just would not wear clothes. Like if that was what it took to wash my clothes. Yeah. At the, at the women's museum, they literally had the whole thing set up in stations of like, like doing the washing step by step. And it was that. And it was like the longest process I've ever seen in my life. Like 19 steps to clean a top. 19 steps to yeah, clean a shirt. It was crazy. Mm. Nightmare. Yeah, and then you had like you had like eight different iron, different types of irons that you could use, that were obviously mm. coal fueled, not electricity fueled. Oh yeah. And then at the very end, the last step is like go tend to the kids and get ready for dinner, and like get ready to start making dinner. And I was like, I don't even want to know how many steps are involved in that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she has this idea to try and make things easier for women. And in 1931, she tells reporters that she wants to see a course of lectures of domestic radio and electricity established in girls' schools and technical colleges. But no one was listening, so she takes matters into her own hands and she establishes the Women's Radio College on Phillips Street in Sydney in 1932. She also creates the Electrical Association for Women, where women could learn how to use electric kitchen and modern appliances and attend meetings and lectures to learn more about electrical engineering, like we talked about before. Um, And the association was in the middle of Sydney and became a hub for women to learn. Awesome. She loves a good club, this girl. She does. She loves a good club. We're not even done with all her clubs yet. We're only halfway through with clubs. Jeez. Good for her. I actually say just below this point I'm about to make, she has a lot of fingers and a lot of pies, but the pies are about to become even more important. So that's the vibe of the next bit of the story. But before that, part of her schooling um, is focused on safety and it's reported that she's really conscious of this because once an electric shock knocked her out for an hour. Oh, my God. When she was working on something. and. Another story that a young boy who was visiting her property got electrocuted and died and she never really forgave herself that that happened. It was a faulty wire. It, was nothing, it wasn't her fault or anything. But she then became very conscious of needing to teach resuscitation to her students mm. and how to do CPR properly if someone wants to go be electric shocked and how to try and avoid that at all costs as well. It became a huge part of her lessons, which weren't really taught in other places, mm-hmm. which was really big for the time. Ethics. Mm-hmm. We love to see it. So, yeah, so in 1936 she writes a book, the first ever all-electric cookbook printed in Australia, and it had seven different editions and it stayed in print for 18 years. 
And she also publishes a children's book about electrical safety in 1938, which helped kids kind of understand the risks associated with the new things that might be popping up in their homes. Which is definitely what would have been happening at the time. Like people would be getting, I don't know, toasters and toasters and fridges fridges and not TVs yet, but. Not yet. She actually goes and sees one of the first TVs later in the story. She heads to the US. Really? Yeah. And she sees the first TV and then she's so inspired she comes home and starts like working on the technology herself. And she's like, I believe that chemistry has something to do with it. And she starts like being all smart that I can't explain. Hmm. I don't get it. But yeah. Oh my God. She's great. What do you mean she's, yeah, she's not that exciting? Amazing. I just feel like sometimes when you hear like a spy story or like a pant show story from last week and it's like adventure, sex. Condoms everywhere, flying the plane, <laughs> spinny, tricky things. And then, like, she made a radio um, with wires inside. Like, it does, it, she's amazing and she's such a trailblazer. And we'll get to some of the awesome stuff she does in a minute. There's even more to come. She's like at the start of her trailblazing. But yeah, it's like they're different kinds Every of stories. Every story is important. They're different. It's fine. We all have different, we all get drawn to different stories too. So she has a lot of fingers, a lot of pies, but the pies are about to become very, very important. In July 1938, Violet is one of 80 women in attendance at the inaugural meeting of the Australian Women's Flying Corps, and it's later known as the Australian Women's Flying Club, held at the Feminist Club of New South Wales on King Street in Sydney. And Violet is appointed the treasurer and instructor of Morse code for the organisation. She's cool. Yeah, Violet's super intelligent and their attention's building globally. Things are starting to happen. And she realizes that there is going to be a need for women to start being trained up to help their country in some of the technical electrical engineering kind of things like Morse code. Uh. So at the time, she's the only female electrical engineer in the state, and that's in 1939. But with the help of her husband, who's also an electrical engineer, she forms the Women's Emergency Signaling Corps, or SIGS, with the aim to train women in telegraphy so they could replace men working in civilian communications, um, freeing them up to join the armed forces if the war does break out, but also potentially seeing women help their country in emergency roles as well. Fabulous. So she sees a need, she feels a need, and by the time the war breaks out in 1939, she's trained hundreds of women some say thousands, to an instructional standard, which is incredibly high, and what they need to be as qualified as any of the guys that are ready to go in the Navy, Air Force, those sorts of things. That's awesome. I know who you're doing now. There was a book that I found in a uh, bookshop and it was about her and about this part of history, how she was training all these women. And I was like, I need to do this chick. Here we are. This is great. This is what made me cry at the – I know another cry, another cry, whatever. But this is what made me cry at the Women's <laughs> Museum because I realised, oh, my God, she fought and she pushed and she trailblazed and she got to what she wanted to do and then she turned around and went, okay, what is the best way for me to start lifting women to where they can get mm, to as yeah. well and where I am and even further? And she goes yeah. hard for that. The original women who code. Yeah. Literally. Fantastic. Yeah. Coding with Clossie has got so much to be thankful for. <laughs> so true. Did you know that Carly Kloss is a big coder? Yeah. Carly Kloss, huge on yeah, coding. Yeah, she's got a, a school, like a training program. Yeah, school. that's a little nod to Florence maybe what Carly's doing. 
So the war breaks out and it's like, go time. And she's like, okay, I've got my posse of badass women telegraphists who are super talented and prepared for this sort of thing. And they're saying about a thousand of them at this point. And so she starts campaigning to have some of her best trainees accepted into the Air Force or the Navy. But they shut it down and they say the answer is absolutely not, not even a chance, walk away, see you later. But that has never stopped her before because she's heard that so many times now. It's War of Ducks back, baby. And so she writes to the Minister of the Navy again and she says, I would like to offer the services of our signalling corps. Uh, If not acceptable as telegraphists, could they at least be instructors for your guys? Like they know not only what to do but how to teach it. If you don't want them working in the field, then let them help train people up to get there, right? She's dismissed again. I just don't get it. Like it's this, obviously sexism is, you know, old as as heck, but it's sexism that's actively working against Mm -hmm. men. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. I'm like, you you guys know that this is to help you. You're hurting yourself. Mm, Yeah. You're you're kicking yourself in the foot. They actually desperately need these people with these skills at this time like they are so short staffed Mm. for what they need particularly in the navy that she can't believe that they're once again saying no when they're desperate for help for this one skill set that these women excel at like it's stupid it's really stupid doesn't make sense no it's dumb so later that year so she writes again and they the minister of the navy goes fine you can send six trainees down and they can meet with the Naval Board and they can be tested. So they just go down to Melbourne mm-hmm. and it was kind of like their foot in the door because if these women did well, it would hopefully, hopefully mean the door would be open to the game other again. women. Yeah, exactly. Yep. A lot of pressure. But they weren't fully sold. So instead the commander who was in charge of it, Commander Newman um, from the Navy's Director of Signals and Communications, he came up to the headquarters in Sydney to test the trainees again. Okay. And the test showed that these women were highly proficient and Commander Newman recommended that the Navy admit them. Yay. So surprising. Women good at things? (laughs) But the Minister of the Navy still said no. Shock horror. Gasp. Mm. This is a pause because I'm so mad at the story. It's the Oprah pause. It's the, it's the, what? What? <laughs> were you silent? Or were you silenced? The latter. That's the moment. <laughs> <laughs> we, we will forever call that the Oprah moment. <laughs> and that's what this is. <laughs> we'll pen it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yes. <sighs> so they're denied again, even though they have been recommended to join because they meet all the requirements and more. But Violet is like, you know what? I know you need us. So she writes to the minister and she says, listen here, buddy, you either accept some of us or we'll go to the Air Force. No problem. Well, we'll go to the Air Force. Don't you worry about it. And obviously we know that that would have pissed off the Navy. Mm-hmm. And so on April 21 of that year, the Navy office write a letter to authorise the entry of women into the Navy for the first time in Australian history. Wow. That's cool. This was the beginning of the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service, or RANS, and Mm -hmm. it came with one condition, that if they accept women, 
that there was to be no publicity, meaning it had to be a secret. What? Oh. That's another moment. <laughs> and that right there is, were you silent or were you silenced? <laughs> the latter. They were literally, literally. silenced. Oh, it makes me so That angry. makes me so angry. I know. Oh, geez, what is with these people? It's like freaking like tiny, just, oh. I know. They're so fragile. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. But women are in the Navy for the first time ever in history, so we take it as a tiny little win. Many victories, yep. Yep, 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 yep. Got to take them somewhere because otherwise you'll just lay in a corner and cry like I did after the hike. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the Rams come up later, the Women's Royal Australian Naval Service, so don't kind of forget who they are. I'll kind of refer to them as, as that a little bit. So a week later, Violet went along with 14 of her trainees who all passed their medical tests and their acceptance tests, which they'd already passed, and they arrived in Canberra. Uh, but there were no women's uniforms for the Navy, so instead they dressed in green and gold uniforms that were designed by Violet herself. I like that. Ooh, she went for gold? She just Love does it. everything, doesn't she? Yeah. What colours were they? Oh, wait, you said predominantly green. Green with bits of gold on them. All right. Okay. Lovely. Classy. Intentionally Australia. Australia I don't know. Yeah. I did think that when I read it. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Exactly. Well, they were the Australian Navy, mm. so it makes a bit mm-hmm. of sense. But, yeah, I'm going to put a photo of that up on the Instagram page of this uniform. But all the photos I've seen so far are in black and white. So hopefully between when we record this and when we post, I'll find something colorized that we can put up there because I think they'd be pretty cool uniforms. Yeah. Yeah, cool. From that initial 14 included in the RANS or the Women's Royal Australian Navy Service, by the end of the war, World War II, it had expanded from 14 to 2,600, which made up 10% of the Australian naval force at the time. Holy moly. Mm -hmm. And these weren't just um, telegraphists. These were were people working as assistants to help them. Um, they were all people, they were also people trained up in like Morse code as well and just basic communication. So these women were working as this like underground telecommunication service, but they were never given the credit that they deserved at the time. Mm. Of course not. No. Because they were silenced. Mm. Exactly. So by the time the war had ended, <laughs> Violet had actually trained 3,000 women. 3,000. Yeah, 2,600, like I said, were already in the Navy. Now, I think what's happened as well, so a third of that number, 3,000, which is 1,000, Talissa, do your maths. Um, Good maths. <laughs> thank you. Remained at the school in Sydney and became instructors there. So that 2,600 I think is kind of like a tree with branches, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her, py- her pyramid scheme, yeah. so to speak, well, but. For a good course. And good course. I haven't said this yet. You'll all be shocked at this. She doesn't charge one cent for any of the classes that she teaches. From the moment she opens her school to the moment it eventually closes, she never charges anyone a cent. She does it all for free for her love of electrical engineering and her want to help her country and women especially as well. Mic drop. How does she stay afloat? Well, she earned a lot of money from electronics business early on. Good for her. The classrooms were fitted out by Sydney County Council, so she wasn't paying for equipment all the time. I don't know if she was paying for it at all, actually, but that would be really hard to find now. Um, But she was kind of supported by a couple of different things. Eventually the Navy ended up supporting Mm -hmm. her as well. Oh, well, Um, that's nice. Yeah, she doesn't charge her students a cent. (laughs) That's cool. Yeah. 
Wow. So, yeah, her students were all very highly regarded and many of them worked in the service or became instructors because they were so good. And by August 1945, her school had trained some 12,000 men in Morse code, visual signaling and international coding as well. So she wasn't just training the 3,000 women, she was also training um servicemen too who were already working for the navy so even all the servicemen that she trained she never charged them a cent instead she'd ask that they send her a memento from their time serving um or photos of their travels while they were working for the navy and that's why in her school the walls were filled with photos and mementos of all these um navy officers out in the field doing um really crazy stuff at the time with all the skills that she taught them. Yeah. Awesome. Just to add to the inspo. Yeah. Love it. In May 1941, the Air Force appointed her as an honorary flight officer of the Women's Auxiliary Australian Air Force so she could legitimately instruct Air Force personnel then as well, not just people in the Navy. It was the only official recognition she ever received during her war efforts, but when the war was over, she wasn't finished Mm. helping them. Anyway, yeah. So Violet decides to help with the rehabilitation after the war. So obviously when the men were coming back from the war, they needed to be trained and skilled up to have jobs that were relevant to civilian life. Yeah. And there weren't many avenues that they Mm. could do that in. So she kept her school open for as long as was needed for instruction in wireless signaling. So she trained men from the Navy, pilots and others needing a trade qualification as a signal signaler ticket. Um, and it's understood that some of the airmen wanted to come back and work for Qantas, but they couldn't do that until they had these tickets because they had to learn Morse okay. code at speed. So they might have known the basics, but they had to practice it, which she could teach. And they also yeah. had to learn how to deal with the modern equipment because obviously technology was starting to build at that point and they had been working with old equipment while serving the country to what Qantas would be using at the time. Did you say, you said what Qantas is, right? For those who might not know. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't. Sorry. Duh. It's, um, it's our national airline. The, I don't know. The national carrier. Lucy? Oh yeah. It's not for Lucy. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I think it's the Queensland and Northern Territory Aerial Service or Aviation Service. It's our big dog f- uh, yeah. airline. Yeah. National carrier. Yeah. The flying kangaroo, the spirit of Australia. I still call Australia home. <laughs> The civil aviation, like I said, they actually fitted out some of her rooms with transmitters, receivers and radio compasses so the pilots could practice for their wireless ticket at the school and be using the right technology. So once again, the equipment was supplied. And in 1948, she held her own flight radio operator license so she could operate for flights as well, just for fun because she loved radio so much. She's really into radio. Yeah. One of the ex-airmen that she trained for their civilian career, wrote, um, being unemployed, we spent almost each weekday at the school. So if a tuition fee had been applicable, they called her Mrs. Mack. That's how she, hmm. how she was referred to at the school. Mrs. Mack would have earned a tidy sum of money. That, of course, was not her way of doing things. She required no payment for the training she provided, and I suspect that she was quite out of pocket over the whole affair. It would be true to say that a great number of pilots whose futures were finally fulfilled in airlines in Australia owe a deal to Miss Mack. Sounds like it. There was no other school operating in Sydney at the time providing Morse code training to potential airline pilots, and no other school there or thereafter giving such training completely free of charge. Wow. So a lot of people owe their careers to her. Yeah. And that was someone from the mm. so Royal Australian Air Force. 
Yes, Royal Australian Air Force, an ex-airman right. who yeah. came back um, and trained up with her to get a civilian job. Ooh. Mrs. Mack continued to run her school voluntarily, teaching teaching the courses, um, and she was busy doing that but also not too busy because she would regularly be in correspondence with Albert Einstein. What? Oh. What? Yeah. <laughs> Um, they they know that she wrote a number of letters to him. In Morse code. <laughs> I don't know if he knew it. Maybe he had to go to a school and learn it. Um, but, yeah, they wrote letters back and forth and, and they know that they were back and forth because at least two of the letters um, that he sent were replies so you could tell that they were him also corresponding with her. Yeah. What were they talking about? Lots of different things. She, two of her letters remain in his archives in Jerusalem, so like where his letters are. Uh-huh. And in it, she sends him a couple of different gifts, including shells for his daughters that Airmen had collected across the Pacific for her, um, a boomerang which had been brought to her from Central Australia by an airline pilot. And she also wrote that she'd sent him a didgeridoo. And he wrote back saying he didn't know what to do with it. So she sent him a recording of didgeridoo music um, when he couldn't work out how to play the instrument himself. So they they had a bit of banter. They sound like good friends if they're sharing yeah. like gifts. Gifts, yeah. And she's giving presents for his his daughters. Like it sounds like a it doesn't sound like a random, right? Yeah, it sounds like a friendly relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that we've under like not maybe not underestimated, but like forgotten about her is she's actually a genius. Like mm. her mind, she turned to teaching because that felt like the right thing to do. But she was a genius in her own right. Like her talent and her skill and her ability to learn things, pick them up, you know, craft what she did is was second to none at the time. She was really talented. Yeah, it really sounds like 100%. it. 100%. And she was meth- she was methodic as well, like sending those Australian um, artefacts and mm-hmm. not artefacts but, you know, cultural heritage items, mm-hmm. you could call them. I don't know what the right term is. That's clever. Mm. Like, you know, yeah. not in a propaganda sense but in a like this is what we're about, this is what the real Australian yeah. is about, you know. Exactly. That's that's. Respect. So in June 1950, she was appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire for her work wow, during the war. OBA. And in 19, yeah, in 1954, at age 64, she retired from the school to spend time at her home in Greenwich Point. But she only did that once the airlines established their own school and the government added signals training to its section of the navigation school at the technical college. So she only shut her school down when she felt like there was an alternative. What she was teaching exactly was being taught at a high level somewhere else, which I really respect because she was 64. Yeah. Yeah. And she had done a lot. Yeah. She had everything. She's not sitting down on her hikes, Talissa Bazaz, nope. and I'm not trying to no, hike shame not. you here. But <laughs> there's a lot of hike shaming going on in this podcast. <laughs> I know. It's okay. I know. It's, I'm sorry. it's just a fun thing to reference, and now we have to keep it in this podcast. You can't <laughs> edit it out because we've just referenced it too much. I know. And maybe I'm a genius. Maybe that was my tactic. Erin <laughs> is really good at hiking. That's what Erin wants everyone to know, that she's the best hiker in the group. Everyone's going to think I'm a lazy shit. I was struggling. No, I'm just really mean. (laughs) (laughs) I remember walking up this mountain in Laos, no, um, Myanmar, and I thought it was a short walk up to see these monkeys. We'd gotten up at dawn for something else. I was already tired and we're like, oh, yeah, let's do this walk. 
And then I had a tiny bottle of water and we got out of the car at 40 degrees and it was this huge mega mountain and I was with these three tall European lanky dudes that just like legged it up this dusty rock and I just I the thing is I know how you feel because I was like this sucks this really sucks yeah so she's retired and her leisure pursuits at the time include scientific study reading gardening and jam making oh wholesome little COVID lockdown girl jam Mm -hmm. I'm surprised I didn't say making banana bread in 1964, she became a patron of the Ex-Rans Association and in 1979 she was made a member of the Royal Naval Amateur Radio Society. So once again mm. with those clubs, she really was yeah. still involved. Many badges. She would yeah. yeah, she would have been very good at like scouts or something. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, despite being nine years older than her husband, Cecil, he she outlived him by 23 years. So she was, um, yeah, single the last 23 years of her life. Oh, that's a long time. Um, and after his death in 1958, she shared her house with his sister for a while, who was a primary school teacher. And in May 1977, she suffered a stroke which paralysed the right side of her body and she uses a wheelchair from then on and and eventually she goes into a nursing home Mm -hmm. near where she lived and she lives out the rest of her days in the nursing home. That's sad that he died so much before her. Yeah. 23 is a long long time. It really is. Um, On May 2nd, 1982, she's recorded saying, it is finished. I have proved to them all that women can be mm-hmm. as good or better than men. And two days later, on May 23, 1982, she died peacefully in her sleep. And that's the quote that made me start crying at the museum. Oh, <laughs> oh darling. This is why we tell these stories. This is why we I just tell think these it's stories. So cool. And like she could have done so much like with her career. And she thought, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to make a free school. Mm. and I'm going to teach women and I'm going to help them. I just think that that quote is like, honestly, I burst into tears at the museum and I was trying to be really cool and be collected, but I don't have to be because right now I'm recording in my bedroom and if I want to cry, I can cry, God damn it. Mm -hmm. But she's incredible. Oh, man, I love when they have that one peace out moment. Like, Yeah, yeah. mic drop. Yeah. All right, before I go, just a reminder that I just smashed Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just smashed it. I smashed the glass ceiling. Watch your, watch your step. Yeah. Bye. Seriously. Fuck you in Morse code. <laughs> At her funeral, there was a guard of honour from some of the ex-people that she worked with and, and taught as well mm. that paid tribute to her. And she was inducted into the Victorian Honour Roll of Women in 2001 and a plaque at the Australian War Memorial commemorates her services and it's still there today. That's beautiful. Yeah. So despite coming up against every barrier imaginable at the start of her career, um, this barely five foot, barely five foot firecracker. Oh, so she's also little. She's tiny. She's oh. 153 centimetres. Yeah. Of course small. you wanted to yeah. do her. Yeah. It's <laughs> tiny, but she changed history and we owe, owe a lot to her, both women who work in the armed forces today, people who work in the electrical engineering field, the fact that we've got, you know, fridges and ovens and things running in our houses and we know how to use yeah. them, lots of different things. She smashed the glass ceiling and also the first woman to 
you know, get her degrees at TAFE. And there are so many women that go through the TAFE and university systems now that she trailblazed for. So she's done some really incredible things and there's a lot to be owed to Florence Violet McKenzie. Oh, Mrs. Mac. Mrs. Mac. Fantastic. That's a great story, Tabs. Oh, I love her. Thanks. I love her too. She just like didn't let anything stop her. No, nothing. Yeah. And she didn't really care. She just kept doing nah. it. And she never complained. Like there's no quote of her being like, these stupid men wouldn't let me do this. She's like, well, we just kept going. And then eventually they realized that we were better than them and they shut up. Like it was really <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that story, Talissa. It was awesome and freaking inspiring AF. Um, sorry for paying you out so much for hating hiking. Um, <laughs> That's <moving> fine. <laughs> As always, you can find us on social media. It's Fierce Females of History on Facebook and Fierce Females Podcast on the Instagram. I did it. Yes. Well done. Tap in. Tap in. Um, if you want to email us, you can do so. It's fiercefemalesofhistory at gmail.com. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please scroll down and give us a review. Um, you can send a little message down there and give us, um, give us some stars. A good one. A good one is just a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, no, if you're going to give us a zero star review, just like. I don't no, know. no, if you're going to, if you feel like giving us less than five stars, I'd like a reason. <laughs> I'd like constructive but, feedback. Yeah, if you want to give us a zero star rating, give us a reason. Just know that I'll be crying somewhere. So just think about that when you do it. Is yeah. that really what you want to do? She cries all the time. So really, it's just standard operating procedure. Yeah, don't take yeah. it personally. Um, or. If you don't really feel like doing any of those things, um, I could say contact us via Morse code, but I feel like that's a bit boring. So I'm going to say instead, walk to us wherever you are. Go for a long walk. Do what Talissa can't do. Um, <laughs> walk to us and meet us here. I can. I just choose not to. <laughs> Bye. Bye.